Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. And so then you have to kind of impart uh, these qualities into a design to make like, you know, you have lures that are jerk, you know, jerk bait lures. Mm -hmm. You have soft plastics that do all kinds of crazy non-mechanical motions. But the problem what we had with flies is none of that. They didn't do that. You know, you had pulsing qualities. You could you could make them hover using uh, neutral buoyant materials and stuff like that. And you, you would have feathers streaming off the back that might kind of flutter in the mm -hmm. water. But we didn't have any crazy swimming motions like you get with lures. Right. So that was my lifelong process at that point. It's like that was the holy grail for me to, to design flies that would do that in the water. This is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Fascinating stories to amaze, encourage, and inspire you in fishing, fitness, and the outdoors. And we're brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. I started this podcast as a way to connect with my friends, people that I admire and respect, and you. It has been a learning journey that's made me a better person, a better fisherman, a better father, and a better athlete. I'm so happy that you're on this journey with me, and I'd love to hear from you with show suggestions, guest suggestions, or questions. The best way to get a hold of me is through text. You can text 305-930-7346 for the fastest response, but if you prefer to email, you can send that to podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. That's a dedicated email address just for the show. If you like this show, you can show your support by posting about it on social media and tagging me. Text the link to a couple of friends that may also enjoy it and subscribe and leave a five-star review if you feel like I've earned it. The website is TomRollandPodcast.com, and that is where everything lives. All past shows, you can go and listen to any show. You can look up all the different shows that we've done, both the How-To Tuesdays, the Full Links, and the Physical Fridays. They all live on TomRollandPodcast.com, and the social media is Tom underscore Roland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D, on Instagram, or you can go to our big account, saltwater underscore experience. I hope to hear from you soon. So now let's get on to today's show. Hi, I'm Blaine Chocolate, and this is a Tom Roland podcast. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, 
log on, and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Blaine, what's going on, man? Not much. Just getting ready to start the musky season. Uh, it'll be a grind for the next four months. Uh, usually uh, start musky season late November, and it goes through mid-March. And I usually shut it down when the fish start showing signs of wanting to go spawn. Huh. Um, so, so, so why is that that it's a winter winter time? Is that water levels? What what is going on there? So I'm I'm you know being in Virginia, I'm in that southern that southern uh, realm of, of the musky range. And, uh, so up North where musky season generally is from late summer through about now, they start shutting it down now because it turns to winter up there and being in Virginia, the Southern, uh, lowest part of their range it we have a much longer season of, of that, that, uh, that prime time basically. Hmm. So up in Wisconsin, Minnesota, they, they usually have October and early November as being that prime time and being in Virginia and we having those mild winters, uh, we, we keep those water temperatures in the upper thirties, mid thirties to low forties throughout most of the winter, unless we have a super cold winter. So those fish migrate into what I call their wintering spots and it condenses everything. And, uh, those fish are, are kind of in that pre-spawn uh, feeding during the, the entire winter, to be honest with you. And it really condenses everything. It just makes the fishing a lot easier, especially backing myself in a corner a long time ago, trying to catch my fly rod. Well, you know, that's, so. that's one of the things I want to talk to you about because the muskie is a very interesting fish. It's a fish that's, you know, not probably not for you is, is surrounded by mystery, but you've got it figured out now, but it probably at one point it was kind of a mysterious fish. It's, I grew up in Tennessee and the muskie, you know, the muskie is a native fish in Tennessee, but I've had very little luck catching them. I've had very little luck fishing for them. And, and they really haven't been something that, that I've fished for a lot. So you have to excuse me if I don't know much about the muskie. I want, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on here because I want to learn a lot more about them. And one day I'd love to catch one. Um, yeah, but they, they were called the fish of 10,000 casts for so long. And it just, you know, it was made out to be this fish that was like so difficult to catch. Then why would you even try, you know, for a lot of people. And, um, so, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm looking at your Instagram and everything and you're catching them on fly and you're doing all these things that are supposed to be not the way that muskies behave, right? Like you're not going to go out there and cast 10,000 times with a fly rod. You, you, your arm would fall off. Right. So you've got it. You've figured something, you figured something out. I'd love to know what the, the process of kind of targeting that fish is something that you wanted to, to, to really figure out and what it was like to go from that to being able to catch them consistently. And you're catching huge ones on fly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, it's been a long process. You know, I've been guiding over 30 years and, uh, uh, a big part of that was, you know, growing up and, you know, that, that era of where we started having incredible TV shows that started coming along when I was in, in, uh, high school, uh, flip pallet show mm-hmm. Walker's K and, uh, a, a really good friend of mine and mentor, Larry Dahlberg, Mm-hmm. came around and it was doing that hunt for big fish. And it started off as these little five minute episodes that kind of led into some other shows. And then it kind of morphed into the bigger show that it was for so long. And I remember seeing 
as a teenager, we didn't, you know, living in the sticks in the mountains here in Virginia, uh, my parents uh, had some property and for us to be able to get cable, we, uh, there was, we had to tear down too many trees and get satellite. So back then cable wouldn't run up, up, up far enough. So it was way too expensive. So the only way I could ever watch cable was to go see my grandmother and, uh, I'd go hang out with her on a Friday night and eat pizza and whatever. And, um, get up on Saturday mornings and watch ESPN Saturday morning, you know, outdoors and, uh, having those shows. And one particular morning, uh, uh, Dahlberg was fishing for muskies up in, uh, Canada and he started, he was targeting them on a fly rod and that kind of sparked it. And around that same time, my, my uncle and I were fishing on some of my local rivers here on the James and in the new rivers. And we were smallmouth fishing, and next thing you know, a smallmouth gets eaten by mm. uh, by musky, and that kind of triggered that that whole thing with me. I was like, as soon as I saw that, it's like I've got to figure this out, you know. And uh, I, at that point, I was starting to catch them, catch a lot of different other species. I was fly fishing at the time, but really didn't know a whole lot about it, you know. And we had all these mentors come along, and it really kind of sparked my interest, and I kind of fell into. Uh, being able to target not only trout, which a lot of people start fishing for, but uh, being in Virginia, we have so many diverse fisheries here for smallmouth bass and stripers, uh, landlocked and saltwater. And uh, it really allowed me to be able to have a giant classroom as uh, and learn from all these different species and see how they feed. But uh, I also met... Uh, a, a good friend and mentor, Harrison Steves, who uh, is a biologist at Virginia Tech. And he had a good friend of his, uh, Steve Heiner, who was an aquatic entomologist. I met them when I was in high school on the Jackson River, which is a tailwater here in Virginia. And he taught me, Harrison, being an incredible fly tire, how important it was to kind of match the hatch and, and figure out what the fish are feeding on. And uh, all that kind of morphed into my career now as a guide, um, just learning at a really young age at 16, how important it is to figure out what the fish are feeding on and just having a, a God, God given talent to be able to be an artist. And I was able to take that artistic talent and put it into fly design Man. and just, just having a, an, an understanding as you know, about fish behavior. And it's just kind of, it's it. It's in you. You know, I, I don't know how to explain it. Well, it, it, it comes with a lot of experience and it comes with, I mean, one one thing, like when you said that you saw a smallmouth get eaten by a by a muskie and that really triggered it. I can think about the first time I ever saw, you know, something get eaten by a barracuda. And I was like, oh, my God, like I love that fish all of a sudden. And then it's like now I know what a lure needs to do. Now I know what a fly needs to do. Now I know what these fish are looking for because you see it in action and it, it it's many 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 of those i think with many different species but one of the things that i was going to ask you was um you know how did you start to learn what what these fish are eating um because i'm sure they uh, they have a v variety of things that they like to eat at different times of the year so how do you how do you diagnose what they're eating all right. For, so, um, for me, um, it all comes back from that trout background and learning from Harry and understanding the foods that are available in a, a given fishery. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, so early on he, I was, I was able to get some books, uh, 
McCaffrey's Guide to Aquatic Entomology. Um, so it, it Steve Heiner, the entomologist, I mean, he really made it very clear that how important it was for me to do that if I wanted to really understand fish behavior and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. because it's all connected from when when even predators, the muskies starting off as a fry and and what they are feeding on when they're small and then, then what they go to when they move to different sizes and all predatory fish are like that. So understanding all the different foods in, in a given river, say the, the new river or the James here in Virginia, um, it was important to me as a young age. I mean, and being in school and being taking biology, so you have a, you have that understanding and, and that bringing to your attention as you go through school and, um, environments and fish behavior or whatever, um, ecosystems and all that stuff. So you study that. So it was pretty easy at that time in me growing up in school, um, and having the interest I did in fishing to, to want to understand what types of baits are in the rivers, mm-hmm. you know, uh, smallmouth bass being predators and all that. And, and kind of looking at it from all different food sources and, uh, learning that in reading whatever, whatever I could back then, I mean, it's, before internet, obviously. And, mm-hmm. uh, the, the information is so readily available now. Um, it's just a different world as you know, right. but, uh, back then, uh, it wasn't a whole lot of, uh, information out there other than books. Right. Um, and some, some shows, uh, but now it's just, it's, it's so readily available. It, um, it really makes it much easier to understand what you're trying to target, whether you're going some exotic place somewhere in the world. But uh, for me, it, it was super important understanding that and what fish are feeding on, whether it's bugs, whether it's invertebrates, whether it's other bait fish or even other predatory fish. I mean, muskies are the apex predator in any environment that they live in. And it doesn't if it's a, if it's acting and making these triggers that make these fish feed, it's going to look at that as a food source. It could be a smaller muskie. It could be a a pike, it could be anything. And I mean, you can, it doesn't take much to, to get on the internet and look, and you could see muskies eating anything from, uh, ducks to other muskies to other pike. And I mean, it's, it's like you're saying with barracuda, uh, muskies are, and this, we could dive into how they feed and what they're thinking. And I mean, but it took me a long time to obviously understand what I was really targeting. And, you know, I owe a lot of that to, one, my dad, my dad always told me, he goes, if you're, if you're, if you're going to be uh stupid, you better be tough. Right. Yeah. So, um, I, was, I got the I was same advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was too hard headed and, and too stupid to quit. So, I mean, I saw Larry doing it up in Canada when I was younger and I was like, you know, we have them here and I'm going to figure this out or it's going to kill me. But, um, uh, meeting Harrison Steve's, uh, when I was 16 and, and starting that, that relationship brought me more into the, the fishing fly fishing scene specifically. And he introduced me to going to some of the shows that are still going on today, like the fly fishing show that the mm-hmm. Baremskis put on. And I was able to meet a lot of these people that I was, I grew up idolizing like uh, Lefty and Flip and Dahlberg. And um, really most importantly for me as a, as a, a fly designer, um, especially someone that was kind of not getting tired of trout, but being that I was focused on trying to catch muskies early on, um, a guy named Bob Popovics, mm-hmm. uh, who is one of the greatest fly designer designers ever, um, was very kind when I was very young and was a, he, he was always willing to help me. And, uh, he always told me to think outside the box 
And it was always telling me that a great fly design is always coming from problem solving mm. and learning all this stuff and, and kind of falling into the right spot at an early age, kind of put me in the direction where I am now. And I mean, without those people kind of directing and guiding me, kind of being able to bounce ideas off of them and telling them what I'm seeing and all that kind of stuff. And then having the unbelievable mind of Dahlberg out right. there and meeting him later on in life, but being able to see part of his show where he talks about how and why he was doing certain things and going into his, his, uh, what I would call his laboratory, you know, and he's designing flies and designing lures and, and, and explaining why they work and how they work. And, um, Dahlberg was telling me a while ago about Doug Hannon, the bass professor, mm -hmm. uh, and talking about his philosophy on how bass feed and, and all that kind of stuff really stuck with me because it made, it made so much sense. And in living up here in the mountains and living and seeing fish in crystal clear water, most of the time, you're able to see their reactions to what you're throwing at them, whether it's a positive reaction or a negative, you're seeing a reaction. Hmm. So you understand the triggering qualities versus the attracting qualities, you know, attracting qualities are great, but the, the, the real deal is the triggering qualities that make them finally make that decision to eat it. Mm. And it's like, you're talking about with that barracuda. I mean, there's certain things that you have to do to make that fish finally do what it does. Right. So in your fishing, you're, you're sight fishing these muskies all the time. You can. Uh, so most of the time, uh, in the winter we have higher water, you know, uh, the leaves are off the tree. So our water table builds up a lot more in the winter. Um, what I figured out years ago, and this was from just getting my butt kicked and not understanding what it took to catch them. But I, I did have a buddy that, uh, that was into muskie fishing that I was the only person I knew that fly fished, but he met a guy that was really into muskie fishing and he started uh, targeting them on conventional tackle. Um, and me being a smallmouth guide at the time, this is moving forward a little bit. Uh, I started a fly shop back in 95, um, right out of high school and two years into college. I just, just, you know, I just, this is what I wanted to do and I knew it. So I just bit the bullet and, um, opened up a fly shop and I was guiding, I got a drift boat and, but uh, it didn't take long to figure out where muskies would be during certain times of the year, especially in the summer months when we have super low clear water. So I'd started seeing muskies and, and it, I don't have a problem talking about it. I mean, it, 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 I have, I have a big problem with people targeting muskies in the, in the Southern range in the summer, because it's very easy to know exactly where they're going to be. They're going to find any spring, whether it's coming out from the bottom of the river or a trout stream that's flowing in they're going to be in that cooler water and they will be stacked in there like a, like a parking lot. Um, so before I knew better, um, I would, I'd have my buddy David meet me after guiding smallmouth bass. And we would go to these areas where I would see them in the summer, in the evenings as water temperatures are cooling. And we would target these fish. Um, and it didn't take me long to figure out that the flies that I was throwing had no triggering qualities at all. <laughs> He would give me hour or two hours in the bow. What were you throwing at the time? What kind of flies would you throw? Different variations of deceivers, mm -hmm. you know, and um, synthetic style stuff. And there was a lot of uh, stuff happening back then. And this would have been in the mid nineties. Um, but it wasn't until Popovic's um, and some of his stuff that he did with his hollow style flies and creating that, that illusion of mass and, that changed everything. His beast flies, uh, 
until I started playing around with that style of fly, I, I wasn't getting the the reactions that I was looking for. Cause I, like I said, I've fished for an hour or two on the bow and knowing exactly where they were and had my buddy David, uh, be rowing me and putting me in position. And, you know, I'd just give up after a while and he'd step up, step up there with certain lures, especially at that time, bucktails, mm. which are these big spinner baits. So that would be anywhere from that long to 15 inches long, throwing it out there and he'd get a bite almost immediately. So it, it was obvious to me as a guide in understanding bass behavior and trout behavior that fly, these flies had zero triggering qualities or even attracting qualities that made a fish that our average muskie is 40 inches long. Mm. So I also learned that it was, it's very apparent that muskies and especially learned it later on in life that, uh, being that they are the most apex predator in any body of water that they live in, they're, they're very cat-like and very snake-like in the fact that they may feed once or twice a week max. Mm. And if they get a big enough food source, they may not feed for 10 days or longer, right? Unless the, the right food comes along. Um, they're going to be opportunistic like anything else, but um, they don't have to feed like the average fish does, like a, on an everyday uh, process, like trout or bass or, or a lot of different species because of the foods that they eat are pretty big. It, here locally, most of it are suckers. Hmm. And our sucker species are hog suckers or red horse suckers. I mean, the average fish will be 12 to 15 inches long. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out if a big food is available. And the other thing about muskies and, and the reason that they are the fish at 10,000 casts, before I forget this, is they're so efficient at, at what they do. When they when they decide to go kill something. They just go kill it and they eat it and then they go back to their, their layer basically, and they'll sleep until they decide that they are hungry again. Hmm. And I've been able to observe these fish, uh, being asleep for so long that they'll have sand on their back, Really, you know, um, which yes. And, uh, you could poke them with a rod and they won't move and you have to really shove a rod at them for a, a while before they'll wake up out of this catatonic sleep. And, have, you ever, and have you ever gotten doing. one of those type of fish to eat after the, after um, you wake them up like that? We have, um, and generally, you know, uh, and this is summertime stuff. And like I said, this was 20 some years ago. Uh, and I finally, uh, a, a light bulb went off in my head and said, you know what, what you're doing is not right. You know, uh, messing with these fish while they're on springs, they're there for a reason. And so, but what I do and what I have done is I've had some film crews here over the past where, you know, if you want to take a GoPro and in on a, a, a shaft and put it down there in their face and kind of get their reaction and get up close shots, it's kind of a cool place to go do that. Um, some people might do that as being har harassing them and stuff, but you know what? They've harassed me forever. You know, they've, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's my, how I feel about the permit. <laughs> Any chance yeah, right? I get to bother them, I'm going to, because they've bothered me forever. Um, the but, same deal. It, it, so it's funny. So once you wake them up, they're, they're pissed off. They really are. And they're one of the few fish that will make eye contact with you. Hmm. Um, once a muskie knows that you're there and you're targeting them, they, they will, they have a tendency to kind of roll like tarpon and they'll roll up by the boat and they'll turn sideways and, and make eye contact with you. Wow. They're like letting you know, I'm here. It's an aggressive display of aggression saying, this is my territory. I know you're here. I don't like you being here. Um, 
So a lot of times when we'll do that, and this one particular time, a friend of mine from Buffalo came down to do a little short video that he was trying to start as he was starting his new career in guiding. He wanted to do a little short uh, places that he's gone and learned from and all kinds of stuff like that. And he came down here and we got some underwater stuff of muskies on screens. We weren't targeting them at all. We were just, just, it'd be cool video, you know, put it down there and then have them, you know, swim around it and swim off. And so this one particular day after we did that, there was probably seven or eight muskies, you know, stuck right beside each other. And when they laid at a spring, they will like lay right beside each other. And it just looks like logs. Yeah. looks like a parking lot. Yeah. So once you stir them up, they kind of take off and they'll start rolling around out in the middle of the river or whatever. So we just started fishing again for smallmouth, And, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe a hundred feet downstream of where we disturb these fish, uh, uh, he catches like a 16 inch smallmouth bass and not, it wasn't 10 seconds that a, one of those fish that was pissed just crushes that, that smallmouth like 10 foot off the boat. And it happened to be a giant, you know what I mean? And so it's, it just lets you know that, uh, they're just a different, I mean, they do have this whole mystique and this, this, this almost like a legend about them, like a fairy tale muskies. I mean, people that really follow them, um, there's all kinds of legends and lore that that go along with them and and there's there's a lot of truth to it uh but you know for me to see how they react like that i mean just this it just makes you love them that much more you know um but but they're part of the problem too and learning how to catch them going back to that was just getting my butt kicked and not 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 knowing what i was doing because i really didn't have anybody to teach me Mm -hmm. other than the conventional tackle that i was seeing that was working and I could tell that his vibrations were a big part of it. Um, he would use glide baits where they would really move left and right and show a lot of profile. And you could see at that point when, when especially on the glide baits that uh, they would pick certain times when they would hit it. And it was when it was showing the most profile on a hang. So that, then I started thinking about the biology of the fish and their biologic makeup, um, which to me, I think is highly overlooked. So you could look at, say, uh, the face of a muskie. Um, they're very similar to a lot of fish, what I, what I would call fish with teeth. They mm-hmm. usually have a longer face, barracuda, mm-hmm. uh, kingfish, mm-hmm. Spanish, all those fish. So I, I started studying how they, how they feed um, and, th- and why do they have teeth, you know, and, and all that was a big part of the process of, of designing flies that would start getting these fish to start reacting positively to what I was doing. Um, so when you start looking at the biologic makeup of the fish and the food source that it's in that given body of water, um, all these little pieces of the puzzle started coming together. And, uh, so I started realizing you have bucket mouth feeders that inhale baits mm-hmm. and then you, you start looking at say trout, brown trout. Once they get to a certain length, their mouth started getting longer and they started having bigger teeth and those are designed to grab and hold onto, um, so you start looking at how they eat and what's the best way of, of getting them to trigger positively on what you're throwing, whether it's a lure or whatnot, it's showing profile, right? So the biggest part with muskies to even get their attention at all was to have something big enough that would make them want to see what it was. You know, they, they are very curious creatures, but it, and that's why you get what you call follows from muskies. I mean, they'll follow baits, they'll follow live baits, they'll follow flies. But a lot of times they will not eat them. I mean, I've had muskies follow flies for 45 minutes to an hour 
Um, I mean, you could be rowing backwards and just have them follow the fly up river sideways, wherever, and, and still won't eat it. And the reason that is, is because it's not doing what a prey creature will do. You don't get that frantic. I got to get out of here. That fight or flight. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Mm -hmm. uh, That's why that deal. Um, that that figure eight is so so uh, effective at the boat because the I guess well, I always envisioned it that the bait fish is going to the boat. It could be a log. It could be whatever. It's like oh no, I, you know, and it freaks for a second. Yep. And yep. that's like the most natural behavior of that whole like you got this musky behind you or a barracuda behind you or a kingfish behind you or something with teeth behind you. You don't just ease out of there, you know, no. as fast as you can strip it with a fly rod, you freak, right? Like yeah. that's the worst case scenario for a bait fish. And so that's what yeah. I always thought is that, you know, when you hit that figure eight, it's like, that is the most natural that you could make it right there. It is. Um, and so then you have to kind of impart, uh, these qualities into a design to make like, you know, you have lures that are jerk, you know, jerk bait lures, mm -hmm. you have soft plastics that do all kinds of crazy non-mechanical motions. But the problem what we had with flies is none of that. They didn't do that. You know, you had pulsing qualities. You could, you could make them hover using uh, neutral buoyant materials and stuff like that. And you, you would have feathers streaming off the back that might kind of flutter in the mm -hmm. water, but we didn't have any crazy swimming motions like you get with lures. Right. So that was my lifelong process at that point. It's like, that was the Holy grail for me to, to design flies that would do that in the water mm -hmm. and Popovic's uh, hollow flies and his beast flies got the fish's attention with the mass, you know, so I, that was part of it, but uh, we would have a whole lot more follows than we would actually have eats. So then you kind of figure out how can you make a fly kind of dark move around. So we figured out, using like the whole, the whole muddler style head, which is mm -hmm. just a, a bulbous head that uh, has deer hair, but you could also use synthetic fibers or whatever, but you create a massive head. And what happens when you strip that it stalls out faster because of the, the bigger head. And then it, and it wants to kind of kick off left or right or up and down and which is all good stuff. So then at that point you, you make a hard strip and the fly will do that and turn off. So all those kind of things started that whole, like, all right, now we're starting to get fish that actually will eat the fly. Um, and Dahlberg's diving head, you know, mm -hmm. it, it creates bubble bubbles and it dives down and it'll float up and you can do quicker versions of that. But the, the, the thing was, is that it would dry slowly and hover. And, and that's, that's one thing that a fly has over lures generally, um, is, you know, you could keep it in their face for a long time, almost like a gnat. And that, I always tell my clients, that's what you are because you have to make that fish want to get tired of it being in their, in their field of awareness and 
they don't have hands. So mm-hmm. the only way they can get it out of their territory is eat it. Right. You know, or bite at it. So whether or not they're hungry, that, right? Like, right. I mean, right. One, one thing I saw on your Instagram that I thought was, was very interesting and brought it into my world a little bit is that you, <clears throat> excuse me, you said that uh, you were, you were cobia fishing. And you said that the cobia and the muskie had a lot of similarities in, in what they wanted and how they fed. What, what do you, think about that what did you discover about the cobia because they're a funny fish they can be the most aggressive fish in the ocean they can be the stupidest fish in the ocean and they can also be the smartest pickiest fish in the ocean to where the fly actually rolls across their head and they will not eat it right and same thing with like if you get them eating live baits and then or if they're eating live baits and then you start throwing them dead baits and they see how easy that is to throw the to eat the dead pilchards you can forget about catching them on, on a lure or fly because they will yeah. just let it roll across their head because they just are keyed into something. But what did you discover about the, the cobia and the muskie? Well, it, it's like you, you were saying, I mean, they're, they're kind of like in the, initially they could be that ballroom, you know, the, the, uh, the, the barroom brawler, mm-hmm. like you just, the, the biggest meathead in the room, right. you know, um, but that they, they, they have a very fast learning curve. Uh, and I, I I have noticed, so Virginia, and I'm sure you're probably very aware of the trouble Kobe are kind of in all over the country. I mean, they, they, uh, they've been targeted, uh, by a variety of anglers all over the, all over the country from, you know, the Gulf all the way up to Virginia, right. And Virginia in the Bay, um, they migrate up our way and usually are in the Bay first part of June. So once that happens, the Chesapeake Bay is one of the largest estuaries in the world. And a lot of the, a lot of the cobia will spawn in the bay. So you just have this huge migration of cobia that come into the bay. And what's happened over the years since the striped bass populations have kind of died off in the bay and um, other fisheries, the cobia became a very important fishery for all these captains and all these anglers, because there really wasn't a whole lot of other fish to fish for. And so the cobia towers were invented. So you have all these huge towers where people are targeting these fish. And you're right. Like generally, when cobia are not messed with, and I've caught them in different parts of the country, they they can be pretty easy to catch, mm-hmm. especially if they if they're in that mood. But th- like you said, though, they can they can not be in that mood, and then you've got to feed them like I- any top predator, right? Um, just like feeding tarpon or anything else. Mm-hmm. You've got to do everything right to make them eat. And that's what I kind of fell in love with. I kind of got into the cobia uh, fishing here in the Bay later on after, you know, everybody's like it's any given day in the summertime, there may be a hundred boats out there on, on these fish. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, it doesn't take long to, to know where the fleet is. I mean, the Bay is only so big. So you get out there and you, you know, these, these fish may be running down an edge of a bar, right. And they just keep streaming by and they're up on the surface. And they're, I mean, you get a hundred boats casting at you just like tarpon season. uh, These fish become super weary. Um, and, and they become very, I mean, you have to, you have to put it in their place in their field of awareness at the exact right time and then turn them into the predator that they are and not doing it right on a lot of times, but, also designing the flies like the game changers that I've done that have that, that, uh, three-dimensional profile and swimming action that have all these built-in triggers. I was able to figure out like, you know, you put any certain fly in front of them, they just, just didn't, 
do it. You know, they may come up to it and then they veer off. Right. And what I've noticed, and I don't know if you've noticed it or not, that you have about 20 foot max on these fish. As soon as they see it, if they're going to eat it or not. And, and a lot of times they'll end up following it, but then they're, they're just, they're just kind of playing with you, mm-hmm. you know, um, other, but I have caught Kobe on figure eights, just like musk, which is super cool. Yeah. Um, eat, I even stuck a 70 pound, uh, cobia last summer on a figure eight and just didn't have enough. I didn't have enough force to be able to get a hook in him. I fought him for like 20 seconds and he, he just spit it out. You know, their mouths are so tough. It's hard to get a good hook in them sometimes. But, um, but what I noticed is just their behavior, uh, when they are being finicky was very similar. Um, so you start doing that fight or flight, right. And you put a fly within 10 foot of their face as they're cruising. And once they see the fly, you start running and running it from them. Um, that triggers them to start running after it a lot of times. So, but once they kind of, you have that, also you have that, that field of awareness where they start realizing there's a boat out there, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that stuff I'm starting to see a lot here, um, especially as they're getting uh, pressured so much that you have, like, a, like I said, you have about a 20 foot area where they're going to eat it. And the same with muskies a lot of times now here in, uh, in our rivers so that they're getting pressured you know we love all our fish to death you know and it's good that we have a lot of anglers going after these fish because the more fish that appreciates what we have the more we can protect it mm-hmm. but on the other side it makes the job a lot harder to catch yeah. them regularly right yeah. so you know what's but, funny uh, about but, fish like like um cobia cobia is a good eating fish right so if very few of the of the legal fish are getting released at least where yeah. where we are i don't know so oh, same here 100%. that cuts down on the learning curve a lot because if a fish gets caught and released and caught and released like a trout in in the madison river they can be pretty spooky like i've seen this before i've heard this before bonefish tarpon permit they people don't kill them a lot right so you right. can recapture the same fish and so i mm-hmm. think that with a fish like that they get even more spooky where this is what the first time i ever went to louisiana and fished for the redfish down there I was like oh my god these redfish are just it's, it's incredible. They're like the stupidest fish I've ever seen, but they're also maybe the most aggressive fish. I don't know what it is. And, and my friend, uh, that lives there, he said, well, every legal redfish gets killed. So they only, you only fool them once. And I thought about that. I thought about that. I was like, you know, there, there's something to that. Like all these other fish that we're catching, you're, you're catching and releasing and catching and releasing for them to have that same experience over and over again. And then that makes you kind of wonder about the fish's brain. Like what, what is it that they remember from that? Is their brain capable of, of that? I think that it probably is. They have a negative experience with a bird or whatever. Then they tend to avoid those type of situations um, in their life where they see something overhead and they, they freak. Right. I mean, maybe that's oh, in yeah. their DNA and maybe that's, I, maybe that's a negative oh, experience. But, yeah, but it is kind of interesting to to think about that with the cobia. Like, what if everybody was releasing them? And then, then how smart would those fish get? <laughs> oh, yeah, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I just think it's the boat traffic more than anything. Yeah. And then they may see their butt. You know, they like, you know, they, they a lot of times they're not by themselves, right? So I don't, I don't know if I'm not going to say that they can, they have that cognitive of a brain that they can say, you know, but I do think that they, they have a negative feel when they feel a boat mm-hmm. and then they visually put eyes on it. Uh, and I think that's why I think you have that short window where you have to have something that's 
these triggering qualities, positive triggering qualities sure. that make them want to eat then, especially, especially here. And you, you hear about North Carolina when they're migrating through North Carolina, a lot of the captains and I know down there say they're just dumb as dirt. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I, I truly believe that they're just not seeing the pressure until they get into the bay and then they're getting hammered every day. Right. You know, um, and I think, I think they just, I think it's just becomes a very tense situation. I mean, uh, I think they just, you know, it's, I think it's just a survival deal that, yeah. that's inbred in them for yeah. sure. Uh, but they definitely get smarter as, and, and uh, you're right. Like there is, if, if you get, I don't know, maybe like a fly cast away, like a good fly cast, maybe 80 feet, you get inside yeah. of that. And, you know, there, if you don't make a good cast and they follow now that fish is going to be hard to catch. But, you know, a lot of times, like if you're, if you're doing it differently, like sometimes we'll fish Cobia in 200 feet of water or more. And, and, you know, you're bringing up a fish and all of a sudden 50 or 60 Cobia come up with a snapper or with something else. And they're just curious. They're just looking. And every one of those fish is going to eat anything that you put in the water. Cause it's, I mean, they'll come right to the boat, but it's that first time. And then they kind of yeah. lollygag on the surface a little bit and then they go down. You're going to bring them up a couple of times and then, then they're just not going to play that game anymore. They're just not, they're just not down with it anymore. Yeah. I think it's the curiosity side of Cobia that I think is very similar to muskies. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, uh, you know, they, like you said, they don't mind hanging around the boat once they know you're there, but the, the likelihood of them eating is a lot slimmer. Yeah. Um, and you know, this summer we actually had, we were fishing some pylons um, in the bay, the bridge pylons, and there was a school of maybe 10 of them, mid 40 inch fish, really nice cobia. And uh, we were trying to pull them off with flies and they ended up, kept, they kept going to the transom with, with the motor. They, they had some curiosity mm-hmm. with, with the transom and, and muskies do the same thing. I've had, I've had uh, one client specifically, we, we you know, running up uh, years ago in a jet boat to get into this one pool. And I'm at the bottom of the pool and I was like, all right, go ahead and stand up and stretch your line and get your fly wet and, and all and strip line out and kind of get it right. And we'll, we'll just move up here a couple hundred yards and uh, we'll start fishing. And I've got the motor on, we're probably going about five miles an hour, just cruising up the edge. And his fly is like literally right beside the motor, five feet from the motor and a mid 40 inch muskie comes up and eats it right at the, right at the transom with right next to the motor. Take and that I, 10,000 casks. <laughs> I know. Right. It's like, but, but the same deal happened with these Cobia. I mean, we pulled them off the, with the fly, but the, you know, after they got off the piling, they didn't, they kind of lost that interest in feeding, but then they saw the motor. So they go to the motor and all of them got behind the motor and was just kind of hanging with the motor. I don't know what they were doing. And uh, the captain I was with said, Hey man, just drop the fly back there. And I dropped it back to transom. And I couldn't see the fish because they were directly behind the boat. And I was up at the bow. And I put it right at the edge of the transom and just started jerking the fly, making it kind of turn and jerk. And a, one of those bigger ones just came up and engulfed it. Wow. And, and I think it had to do, you know, that jerk and showing profile and acting wounded. So, uh, you know, but you could do that a hundred times and they won't eat it either. Right. I mean, that's the, that's the thing about these fish and I mean, their the curiosity. Cobia, the cobia is, is a fish that's known for getting tough to catch and hanging around the motor or the side of the boat like that, or right on the chum bag and people free gaff them because they can't catch them on a rod and reel, but they can stick a gaff <laughs> in the water. And then, then, and you know, they, they pull it in like that. And uh, yeah. you can look at it and you're like, that one's legal. 
that's free gaffing like that. And a lot of people do that. Um, but it's, it's not an uncommon thing for them to get so difficult that you can't catch them on bait. You can't catch them on anything, right? Like they just get tough. I want to talk about your, your, your path to the game changer because that's really what you're known for. I liked, I, I, I like looking at your stuff because I like it that you fish for all these, what I would call weird fish, even though they're not weird fish, but like, like, I, I don't think that there is a trash fish, that there is such a thing. I love all fish and I love all tackle and love fishing for whatever, like smallmouth bass, largemouth bass, bow fins, snake heads, any of it, it would be fine to me. And you're, you're doing a lot of that. I want to get to that. Um, but I want to talk about this, this path to the game changer, because what you've created is really interesting and unique. I mean, most, most things that I see in fishing for, first of all, are just a variation of something else, like an evolution of something else. But what you've created is something that maybe, maybe you would say it is an evolution of something else. I don't know. But to me, the first time I saw it, I was like, man, that is totally original and absolutely unique. And then what I've seen over time is that this is not just a fly. This is like a platform. That's what you you refer to it a lot. It's a tying platform. Not unlike um maybe somebody creates a new lure, like Larry Dahlberg's lure with the the whopper plopper. Like yeah. that's so unique and original. And then now I'm seeing other lure companies do something similar to that. And he has created like a platform. That's like a new lure platform. You've done that with, with a fly, this game changer. And if anybody doesn't know what the game changer is, it, it, how would you describe the game changer? Um, the game changer, uh, and uh, see, I had a problem calling it that, but a bunch of buddies, you know, generally, I'm, I'm generally shy by nature and, and, um, you know, I don't ever want to come across as being cocky or at all, but uh, the game changer was a bunch of buddies of mine telling me, you know, I was like, you know, look at this, this thing I've been messing with. And, and I was telling them how the fish were reacted to it. And, you know, you, you look at the action in the water and there's like, you know, I was like, man, it's a real game changer for me. It's like, that's exactly what you need to call it. And I was like, well, it sounds pretty cocky, you know, it's (laughs) like, but, but it was, and that's what it is. I mean, it, it was a, you know, backing myself into a corner years ago and tar- trying to target muskies on a fly rod and guiding for them. Um, you know, it's a school of hard knocks, learning from t- making terrible flies and, and thinking that you have the answer. And, and, and like I said, going back to what Popovics was teaching is a, a good fly design generally comes from problem solving. Right. So, what did, what, I had did to the, create, what did the early game changers look like? Like the first evolution of this thing, because I can, so, um, <laughs> I, some so, of my things just look horrible of any fly uh, that I've ever tried to tie. Like I've, I know what it needs to do and I'm not the artist that you are. And I go to the vice and I create this thing that, I mean, it is the worst looking thing ever. Maybe you catch a fish on it or whatever. And then you start to refine this process. And I know that's what you've done. Um, yeah. But that's what I'm really interested 100%. in is like the, is the early horrible flies what did they look like well uh so what's really ironic is like uh i a lot of times guiding i mean i'm sitting on the boat and i'm just constantly i mean waking up from sleep and just you're always i mean being really into what you're doing right especially early on it's just it's it's everything to you to be successful and i mean you're making this your career so Mm -hmm. your success on the water with clients directly impacts your 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 wallet right so 
I mean, I, I was obsessed with um, and learning from these great designers and tires. Um, hold on a second. Uh, this upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. And you're dreaming you know, it, about it this, like, like I could, I could tell, it. like oh, you're yeah. wait, you, you just made a little mention of it. It's like you wake up and you start thinking, and then you just kind of glossed over that. But I thought of so many times where I woke up and I'm like, okay, I'm going to try that because I, I had some sort of dream about, yep. like you're just dreaming about it. You're thinking about this stuff all the time. Um, anyway, yeah. I didn't want to interrupt you, but sorry. No, 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 but that's, that's, that's it. I mean, I, I got obsessed with creating a fly that would look and swim like the real thing and have these non-mechanical actions that, that make a lot of the hard baits and soft plastics so successful, like flukes or jerk baits or uh, glide baits. So, um, you know, there was a lot of attempts and failures. And uh, one of my most successful fly patterns that I ever created was called the gummy minnow. Mm -hmm. um, so the gummy was a fly created I don't know, back in the late nineties. Um, and it was my first attempt of creating a fly that looked and swam like the real thing. Uh, it failed miserably at swimming like the real thing, but it had the, the exact look of the bait that you were trying to match. Um, whether it be a glass minnow or silver sides or, or anchovies or whatever it might be. Um, so I guess the thing that it's really helped me in my, my designing is if I don't have a material that I'm looking for, I'll figure out a way to make it or ask enough questions to, uh, if you ask enough questions, a lot of times you, you will find the answers and, and having a fly shop at that time, I had enough customers in different, different, uh, fields, uh, of, you know, I had some chemists that would come in. I had some people that were in, uh, petroleum products or whatever you know so what and kind of questions you are asking, you asking them it's like you know so i would have a like i have this idea um and you know I'd like i want to make a sheet of this material to where they would have adhesive where i could kind of build a fly from the inside out to create a three-dimensional look and and be able to laminate 
materials over it and I could add feathers if I wanted to, how would I go about doing that? Is there something out there that I'm not aware about of that already exists? And, you know, so that's, those would be the questions. And, you know, uh, I would get vats of different stuff from some, from some of these chemists. And so it was, it was kind of funny. I mean, you know, I, I, I failed miserably at chemistry in high school. It was horrible. So uh, anything that had to do with math, I was just <laughs> horrible at. Right. So it's like, uh, so I'm sitting here playing with this stuff and, and I finally met some people that were in the textile industries and, and other stuff. And I was like, you know, there's gotta be something out there and, you know, ended up falling into the right lap of this one guy that came in and he said, you know, we got some stuff because I can bring, I could send you some products and it's like play around with this. And I'd already had to fly in my mind. I just didn't have the materials to make it. And so once I came up, once I got the materials, uh, the gummy minnow literally took me five minutes at the vice to put hmm. together. So, uh, back and you probably remember this back when Cape lookout, uh, uh, North Carolina became super popular mm -hmm. back in the late nineties, um, at Harker's Island, kind of the who's who of fly fishing would come right there. You know, all, all, I mean, stage back in the day, I mean, you know, Jerry seam, all those, all those guys, uh, uh, Jerry Gibbs. Um, yeah. I remember Doug Kirkpatrick used to go up to that thing. And he yeah, used to come I mean, back and tell us about all these, uh, uh, Ron, uh, Jarowski. Um, yeah, he would yeah, go up Ed, there, Ed Jarowski yep, uh, and, uh, yep. uh, he would fish Lefty, with him. Flip. Yeah. All the guys, everybody was up there. Yep. So, um, and, and Popovics would come down and fast forwarding it, uh, after meeting him early on in the mid nineties, I started, I created that fly right in 98 and, uh, I never fished it. Um, it was late in the season when I, um, late, I'd say September or something when I finally got the materials and I hadn't fished it. And, uh, but I tied a couple hundred of these gummies to take down to Harker's Island for the false albacore blitz. And, uh, Tom, uh, Tom Earnhardt, uh, used to have a party there. Um, and, uh, Jones brothers boats would co and they would have a pig pick in and it was just kind of a, a big industry party really, um, to celebrate fly fishing. And that was kind of, that was a really big deal. And it was kind of a great way for me as being, I was, you know, my mid twenties at the time, uh, a great place for me to get to see people like lefty and, and, and kind of just get to know some of these industry leaders. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I knew that Popovics was going to be down there. My problem was with the gummy, it's, it's all acrylic materials and it's, it's, most people would say it's not a fly at all. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so that was what I was worried about. And I had no idea if it was going to swim, it would stretch. I could stretch it three <laughs> times. It's original length. And I was like, well, it kind of has a feel of some of these flukes and stuff. Right. But so I, I thought it would be a great idea to take these flies and, and let Bob Popovics decide it because, you know, he was the only one at the time that was playing with, uh, a lot of synthetic materials mm -hmm. and, and epoxies it, I thought and it, stuff. Yeah. Silicones and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, if anybody would say this is a fly or not, he would be the one. And so I found him and he was the first person I saw there and I bothered him enough to, it's like, you know, what do you think of this? And he loved it. Um, he wanted to know all about it. And, you know, he said, let me, he goes, hang out here for a second. And this was in a, a backyard of Tom's house and it's right along the water. And, I just remember the sun setting, you know, I was in line to get the barbecue and whatnot. And 
Popovics comes back and he goes, I want you to come meet somebody. And, uh, it's like several hundred people there and the spotlight coming down from the house and right in the center of this, you know, I'm walking through these people and you just see this like center in the middle of this, <laughs> this crowd is lefty. Right. So, so lefty's in the middle and you know, lefty, how great he was. And Bob said, I don't know if you, you know, lefty or not. I was like, well, I, I've met him a couple of times, but he, you know, I didn't think he would remember me from Adam. He did though. But he had my, I'm yeah, but he had my he flies. Oh yeah. He had the best memory of anybody I've ever met. Yeah. And, uh, so lefty's like, these are great. And he goes, I'm gonna, he goes, how do they work? You know, and lefty being lefty, it's like, this would be like rolling a, 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 a bottle of wine in a jail cell. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like a wine you know, bottle in a drunk tank. <laughs> yeah. Right. So he, he was like, you know, just super, uh, positive and, and very helpful along with Popovics and lefty took several of them and being as humble as he was, he goes, do you mind if I have a few? And I'm like, are you kidding? You can have as many as you want. Right. And so that was on a Saturday night. And, um, this was back before cell phones and, um, or ones that I could afford anyway. And, uh, that next Monday, um, lefty was leaving that next day, but that next Monday I got off the water and, uh, a guy had a message at the hotel. I was staying in to call my wife. And, uh, so I called her and she gave me this number to the flies are at uncle feather merchants. Um, <laughs> so, so I'm like, okay. So I call him and he's like, without, he goes, I haven't seen the fly. He goes, I got a call from lefty. He goes, um, he said, without a doubt, he goes, you guys need this fly. It's, you know, and that kind of started my designing career. And, uh, but going back, making this story way too long, going back to that, that fly failed miserably as a swimming fly. Mm -hmm. It had triggering qualities because of how realistic it looks. And it's great if you pitch it in to, to visual sight feeding fish. I mean, it's worked extremely well on all types of tuna species and whatnot, but, uh, I was really wanting it to have that swimming action. That was the biggest thing because what really triggers fish to come to your offering is movement first, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So if you can get them to start moving towards what you're doing and keep them enthralled and then have that last bit, is it food and have that instinctual innate biologic deal that Man, makes every predator do just, what it does you to just eat it. Absolutely nailed why I think we don't have any good permit flies. It's motion. Like that's what I'm all about. The motion. Maybe you come up with a game changer crab one of these well days. I'm, i I, ha I have some stuff uh and uh, i'd like to see it I, well I'm, i would i'd love to for you to try a few uh i don't i mean yeah. I, my well, problem that, is I've i never i want to get back to to the where the gummy minnow becomes the game changer i had to interrupt you there because no no so <laughs> no it's uh that's what we're here for um but so that to me the gummy was a failure um um and then so i'm like all right obviously this isn't moving like I want it to and how can I get it to move? So, you know, I started looking at jointed, uh, lures, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. that was all coming around. It's like, well, if you have hinges and stuff that that'll work. So, so what I decided to do is I, I, I took a, a piece of silly skin and I put this mesh material in it. And then I started putting these little parts, um, that were joints uh, of like, uh, what, silly skin. What did you skin. start making that of? Of silly skin? That was the first yeah. one? The the joint was yeah. silly skin? Yeah. And you thought that yeah. that might be tough enough to, to, to you know, handle casting and fish biting it? And 
Well, at that point, I was just trying to get the movement, yeah. and then I was going to yeah. go from right, there. Right, right, um, right, right. But that was kind of that was kind of my thought process. And then I was like, man, it's just uh, this is a pain in the. This is just way too difficult to do. So it's like it started answering questions, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. and then I started going from there, and I, I started using. Uh, there was a really famous guide here in Virginia that a lot of us look up to. His name's Chuck Kraft, who passed away a year ago. Um, who was really the first fly fishing guide, warm water too. He's, his main target was smallmouth bass here. And he's a legend. Um, he had a lot of outside the box thinking flies. Um, he had, he had these flies called the Crelexes that he's, mm-hmm. he's created. Yeah. And he's, I knew this. And he's got, uh, uh the CK bait fish. Oh, so yeah. that was some synthetic head with a chamois tail. Uh-huh. Um, so I started taking and trying to, to go off of that and started playing around with chamois materials and all that. And I was getting a little bit of movement, but it it just still didn't have that three-dimensional, you know, serpentine action that I was looking for. And, you know, and then I started playing with, uh, um, bending wire. Um, and that all came from just trying to make a longer platform for muskies just because a lot of times you didn't have longer fibers that had motion, right. You know, so, so, so I started adding joints, uh, to my bigger musky flies to just create maybe another three or four inch long fly. Mm. Um, and that was just to get a bigger presentation, a bigger profile of just more attracting qualities. Um, and then I noticed though, by adding a joint or two, you started having, it would just kind of fold up and collapse and kind of started getting this, this more of a serpentine motion, but it still didn't have that three three-dimensional realistic profile. It was just still a fly that had an impressionistic view. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so I was like that kind of shooting ahead after just terrible flies just, just wasn't working. Um, I finally came back to what really makes a fish swim, um, and really looking at the biologic makeup of the fish, just like I was looking at the biologic predatory instincts of why fish trigger on certain things and why they don't. Um, so what makes a fish swim is you have their fins, um, you have their muscle and most importantly, their vertebrae. Mm-hmm. So it just like a snake, the vertebrae is what really allows all of it to work. So I was like, okay. Uh, and I started looking at lures. Um, the Sibyl magic swimmer is a prime example of that. Um, and then you have a lot of variations of these j- jointed hard baits. And then you kind of, it's like, okay, well, they're starting to create a vertebrae. So, and I was like, okay, well, I can, we have enough chenilles and enough materials on the market. What if I just start creating these little micro small vertebrae and and connecting them and connecting them. And I first originally started with a, a B chain. (laughs) Um, and that was a major pain in the ass. I was trying to tie materials on B chain and have uh, enough weight to have it move. Um, it would work but it was super hard to do and it just wasn't worth it. Um, but I knew at that point I was onto something. So, you know, I was just playing around with a paperclip one day and I was like, you know, if I bend it and do this, I could create an interconnecting chain basically. And I could start at the tail and work forward and I'd tie one section at a time and I get to the final hook, then make the head. I'll, I will have maybe have what I'm looking for. And, uh, so the, the first parts of those, um, I would have one or two that would swim right. 
and the rest wouldn't. And I'm like, well, why is this not working? So then I had to go into an engineer's mind and figure out what the hell, why, what, you know, uh, and what I found out is you have different types of flows and you have laminar flows and you have flows that are more like a, like an obstacle, which, which is called uh, turbulent style flows. So what I found is a lot of the flies that I was tying and I was trying to keep them sparse that the, the water was not being interrupted by the materials. Water was flowing through the fibers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it was, it was not being disrupted or it wasn't being redirected around the, a, a, a solid mass, like a lure or a regular fish's body. So I figured out that I had to create basically a skin or a, 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 a a more dense material that would not allow water to penetrate through the fibers and basically creating a ramp for water to flow over. Hmm. Um, so that's the biggest problem with fly design over conventional lures is most of the stuff we're using pulsates and moves. And that's kind of how we get our motion. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm looking at it on another side is I don't want pulsating movement. I want a rigid body that doesn't fluctuate much because that changes how the water distributes around the body of the fly. And this took a long time to figure out, right? Like, like I said earlier, I'm not very smart. So, you know, it takes a lot of trial and error, right? Might so, not have been smart in the classroom, but dude, you're, yeah. you're, you're a genius when it comes to this. And that's what's, that's what I find so interesting is like when you found what you wanted and you're talking about this engineering mindset, do you think a teacher in, in high school, I know when I started doing things similar to what you're talking about and having this 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 understanding of of a concept that I would have never grasped in school, and but because I'm so interested in this, I'm able to do it. And that sounds exactly like what's going on with you. You say you're not smart, but my God, you are. You're you're a genius, and it just took something that you're super interested in to bring that out. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah. that's yeah. super interesting to me. Well, it's also necessity too, right? right? Absolutely. I mean, it's like uh, like I'm I'm you know I was. You know, like I said earlier, it's like your success on the water is directly impacted Absolutely, by it. Absolutely, hundred percent. So I, for me, I mean, uh, and I also chose early on is to. I love trout, and I don't ever want to take anything away from trout fishing, but uh, I don't know if I have ADHD or whatever it is, but I lose focus really quickly on stuff, and it, it just yeah, I kind of went through the progression of all the different ways of catching trout. Mm-hmm. You know, um, mm-hmm. Larry has this thing is like when you start, you just want to catch a fish. Right. Then you want to catch right. a lot of fish. Then you want to, yeah. you know, that whole progression. I love it. And I kind of went through that. Right. And as a guide, I kind of got uh, tired of just trout fishing. So you know, we had such a great smallmouth bass fishery here and made sense to start targeting them. And I love the aggression, but also the technical aspect of how a really big trophy smallmouth. I think if you, and if you look at some of the, really good designers of and of legends in our sport of fly fishing in general. Um, a lot of them had a smallmouth bass background. Mm-hmm. If you really yep. look at it, uh, lefty and Joe Brooks, mm-hmm. all those and uh, Bob Clouser. I mean, mm-hmm. smallmouth are a great fish to study on their behaviors because they have so many different levels or tech, you know, of how they feed and what they want. And as they grow, um, they're very aggressive, but they can also be very technical, especially this when you get pressured fish, like you were talking about, you know, the, the bodies of water I grew up fishing, a lot of it's catch and release, 
because, you know, people just started doing that as we, as we moved in, especially in the bass world. Right. Um, mm -hmm. so as these fish get caught over and over, they get a lot smarter. So, um, it was a great classroom for me to be able to take these flies, um, especially the game changer and start seeing how these fish reacted and, and being able to, to lure designs have been, that's been the biggest thing for me is, uh, being able to see all these great lure designs and, and adapting that to a fly. And, and that, I think that's really overlooked a lot. It and, is. Um, it is overlooked. Yep. It's especially overlooked by trout fishermen. And that's where the majority of fly tires reside, right? I mean, you got plenty yep. of saltwater tires, you got plenty of smallmouth bass tires and musky tires and everything. But the majority, <clears throat> excuse me, the majority of the fly tires are starting and pursuing trout. And in that world, a lot of times the spinning rod is looked at as evil or wrong or horrible, or you're not going to bunch of worm dunkers. You're not going to learn anything from those guys. Well, let right. them spend an afternoon with Larry Dahlberg. Like, no, you can learn a lot from those people. And a lot of those people are far more skilled at what they're doing than you will ever be dinking around with a fly rod, right? Like, yeah. because you don't have an open mind or those people don't have an open mind. And, I think that a lot of the saltwater tires do look that it's out of necessity, right? Like you want to, yep. you got a customer that comes down and he's like, well, I want to catch a, a, a barracuda on fly. How do we do that? And he's like, man, I don't know. All I use is tube lures, right? So it's a green tube. Help me create a green tube fly goes to his buddy. Well, let's do a braided thing and you know, it'll be about this long and try this. And yeah, it works. Not as good as a tube, but it worked. But I mean, the saltwater tires kind of look towards lure design like you did. And that is a way that you're gonna you're going to progress is is kind of the white belt mentality of learning from anyone. And when you get that closed mind focus, that is I just think that's the the death of of your learning curve, right? Like if you're not looking to people who are being successful, if they're worm dunking and they're kicking your ass, well, they're doing something right. Like try to figure out what they're doing and rep. And if only, if you only like to fish with a fly rod, well then see if you can figure out what they're doing. Like if they're catching, oh, if they're out catching you 20 to one and you're just going to close your mind to that and think, ah, bunch of worm dunkers. Yeah. <laughs> that's no, that's I a mean, bad way to go. Well, that's why fly fishing, um, in my mind, and I'm, I'm a lifelong fly angler and always will love it. And that's my preferred way of catching fish. But that is one re that's one thing that's held the fly fishing community back. Sure. And, you know, I've, I've followed your career for 30 years, you know, and I know you, you know, you, you've done it all too, guiding in, in Wyoming and all that. And, um, you know, doing the salt and I even had clients that used to fish with you, uh, you know, back in the day oh, yeah. when. Yeah. When you first got on with Scott, yeah, you know, yeah. fly rods right and on. all that stuff. So yeah, man. So, uh, and it's a, it's a problem and it's still a problem today. And, um, it's, it's, it's a, a, a sad story to be honest. Uh, you know, um, and it, it really bothers me about the fly community. Um, I, you know, I, I don't feel like, and I'm, I'm not trying to say I'm better than anybody else, but you know, I feel like my body of work over 30 years has proven that I, I, I love fly fishing and I've done some stuff in the industry. I, I don't, the sad thing is it's like, you know, the, 
Larry Dahlberg, he loves to come down and fish with me. And I love having him because I learned so much from him. But a sad thing that happened last year is me and uh, Larry and two other buddies were out there fishing. And Larry, when he comes down, he likes, he wants to know what's in my body of water. And the best. Uh Uh-oh, we froze up a little bit. Me? How about okay. now? Yeah. So he wants to know what's in your body of water. Yeah. Sorry about that. And uh, so what happens, um, you know, we're we, in this particular time of year, um, chubs, if, if you want to try to catch a bait to use as live bait. And and that's what I love about Larry. He's not afraid to to to, to uh, he always talks about fly anglers are always looking through keyholes. Mm-hmm. And, and exactly what you were talking about earlier is like. That's the sad part of why our our industry has not grown as fast as the conventional side because there's there's too much resistant to change, and, and and I think now with the it's 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 a whole lot better than it was 10, 20 years ago for sure. Um, there's a whole lot more people with open minds and people that are totally in to traveling the world and catching all these exotic fish, and that has helped the mindset. But it, there's still a community out there that. This other guy, so this other guy um, comes by us and sees that we have live lines out trying to catch muskies on. So he he tries to turn this into like that's the only way I catch them now is on live bait, which is ridiculous. <laughs> you know, what I mean, it's stuff like that. It's like the saltwater community. You guys use whatever it takes to catch the fish, dude. Every you know, day, if you want to catch right? them, you'll have a fly angler right. one day, you have a bait angler the next day, unless you just decide that all I want to do is fly fish, which you can do that. That's fine, and, right? And, and yeah, many, it, many do, but yeah, but lots but, of guides but, like are like what I one of some of the people that I consider to be the very best, like a Richard Black or somebody like that. They're going to be bait fishing one day. They're going to be lure fishing the next day. They're going to be fly fishing for the next week. They're going to go back and they're going to catch them any which way they can the next day. And they've got anglers that, that respect all tackle and can do it all. But, you know, as a guide, if you don't know what is going on with the bait, I don't know how you think you're going to be the best fly guide that you can possibly be. I agree. That's, that is the thing that gets lost. It's like, I, you can only, if you're a fly fisherman, you can only catch them. So does that, does that bother you? Like that, that you had uh, that, you had that, that encounter and like, uh, totally, but, totally. But, but I mean, why, like, why, why do you let that bother you? You know, uh, I don't know. I, I guess, uh, <laughs> cause, I it, cause it bothers I, me. <laughs> yeah. It bothers me. It bothers me because, you know, we were out there enjoying an unbelievable couple of days of fishing and, you know, I have to guide through these fish and I enjoy it. And it's what I do for a living, but I have to get my butt kicked every day with new anglers that want to catch a muskie for the first time. And it's most, it's mostly 99% fly fishing. And I know where these fish are, you know, and it's like, you know, I mean, you know, on a certain tide where tarpon are going to be coming down a bank, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you just know, at certain times of the year where muskies are going to be in any given body of water in my area, I know it, I know exactly where they're going to be. And the only thing I can't control is my angler's ability and that fish's mood at that particular time. Right. Weather. Right. And I, all, all I can do is put us in the best situation to make it happen. So when I have a, a, a guy that I think is one of the greatest anglers of all time come down and he wants to catch them, how he wants to catch them, 
Um, and I think it's fun to go back to being a child and, and go, go to a Creek and catch chubs on, and on worms. And then you go put that in front of a predatory fish and have it eat it immediately. Like, you know, you, you may know exactly where they are and you just have to make them eat with a fly or a conventional lure or whatever. They have to be in that mood. But with a live bait, it really teaches you that one, you know where they are, whether they're not eating that day or not, but you put a live bait in there, they're going to eat it. Um, and this is the interesting thing. That, and, and this is the other thing that I have a problem with. It's like the conception and where people want to get on soapboxes is, is exactly what you're talking about is how you learn from all different avenues and, uh, of fishing, whether it's conventional live bait, soft plastics, um, you name it, um, and fly. So if you take, if you take a certain situation, it's like Larry told me a long time ago that he's experienced all kinds of, he's even taken a thermometer and put it in a, a muskie's um, butt to see what its internal temperature was related to the water around it mm -hmm. to see when their optimal time of feeding was. And he's figured all that out by looking outside the box. Right. The other thing he's done is he's, he told me a long time ago, he goes, I used to experiment with buying suckers from a farm and catching live suckers in the body of water that live with muskies on a daily basis. And he goes, without a doubt, the, the fish, the sucker that lives in the body of water will get eaten 10 times faster than the sucker that lives in a farm. <laughs> pond. That's he said, because they don't know what a predator is. That the fish that lives with that predator every day knows that it's, it's harnessed with a hook or whatever. In this case, Larry likes to take wire and run it through the fish's nose and not use hooks and, and just watch how muskies will hold on to them. And, and you can just pull them up. A lot of times we're just pulling it up just to see what size they are and then, you know, try to net them without a hook. Right. But uh, the cool thing is, is you learn like that shows you predator prey relationship. For sure. If, if a, if a prey item doesn't act scared of the predator, the predator's like, something's wrong here. Right. So it, it doesn't eat it. You know, I've seen in a lot of these days in clear water where you'll have all kinds of prey items, whether it be smallmouth bass or, or suckers or whatever, setting and swimming right next to muskies. And they don't even bother them. But as soon as you hook one of those fish mm -hmm. and it starts struggling, mm -hmm. you triggered that. I got, it's going to die. Same thing um, with Jack Cravels on a bull shark or something like that. Like they're swimming next to that fish's eyeballs and they've been there for a month. And, yep. and if you hook one of those, it is an instant bite, but they've been there for a month. That bull shark's been saying, man, you make one mistake and I'm going to eat you for a month, but they do like, yep. it's that one little thing. If they do a weird kick, they're on it. Um, that's super yep. interesting. So what advice do you think that, um, Larry would give you about that encounter? What would he say? Uh, well, or he probably I mean, said he something. Like, yeah. He was like, you know, it's just disappointing. And he goes, you know, it's, this is typical of why he got out of just fly back in the, in the eighties is because of that just mentality. Um, it's like, you know, and it, it's, it's so funny when you get into the freshwater scene, um, that if you don't do it a certain way, then you're not a flying. Right. Um, and it, which is completely the wrong idea. It's like you said, if you want to become the best at, at what you do, you have to understand all aspects of it. Mm -hmm. And, that that's what Larry, I mean, that's what he's taught me for years. And that, and that is true. I mean, that's how I've been able to get where I am in 
in this industry well, and be able to another thing you that know, you're doing that um you're you're going to other types of fish and other places and and then making correlations between a cobia and a muskie which a lot of people aren't gonna i mean i don't know i remember saying something about um when i was first learning how to fish for baby tarpon i was like oh, i like baby tarpon because they're kind of like largemouth bass in a lot of ways and this person that i was talking to was like there is nothing similar for for a tarpon and a largemouth bass that is the most craziest comparison i've ever heard i was like really like they sit there under the trees and you throw something in there and they come out and eat it like I don't know. I think there's there's a lot of similarities between a large mouth. Yeah. They have the same mouth structure. They they eat things the same. And and for me, I made a correlation to that, and it helped my fishing considerably because I I was yeah. very familiar with a largemouth bass. I had no familiarity with a with a tarpon, so I took what I knew about a bass, applied it to the tarpon. Some of it worked, some of it didn't. I mean, to their credit, yeah, some of it didn't work at all, but some of it did work, and and it it made me much more comfortable with baby tarpon and being able to, to catch them. And, and, you know, I don't know. I think that, um, you know, that attitude is certainly not welcoming. Like if you wonder why the fly fishing world and the fly fishing sport is not growing, well, when you encounter that attitude of <laughs> you bait fished once in your life, you're not a fly fisherman. It's like, really? Well, wow. Okay. Right. I thought that's I was a, a fly a, fisherman. Catch them. I mean, that's, that's, that's the, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that's the sad reality, but I mean, it, 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 the one thing that I have to always go back on too, it's, uh, it's only 1% that yeah. actually think that anymore. I feel like, but it's that little bit that just bothers you. I don't know what it does. I don't know why I let it bother me, but it does, I guess, I guess because I've spent so much time really putting the effort in to figure things out. It, it's kind of insulting to have someone just make a comment like that and, and not have, I was more upset that, uh, the encounter was so negative to have a legend like Larry with me right? and, and having that kind of a deal. It's like, man, this is, and, but Larry's like, he just, it's like, it, it, you just can't let stuff bother you like that. And lefty would have told me the same thing, but you sure. know, it's kind of hard not to, you know, the but, funny, the funny thing about, um, what I noticed in, in, in my career is that there were, um, w when I first got started, it was before river runs through it came out it was before you had a big influx of anglers. And then you would see these guys in the, in the Florida keys, like, like a Fitz Coker, who was one of my best customers. And, and he started out bait fishing and then he caught tarpon every single way that you could possibly catch them as many as you can possibly imagine until he just got tired of it. I don't, I never want to catch another one on bait. I, if I, I, I just, I'm not into it. I've caught thousands of them on bait. I've caught hundreds of them chumming. I've caught bunches of them on lures. So he was always looking for that next challenge. And he worked his way up from the easiest to the hardest. And then he became a fly angler that he, he just, he had no interest in going backwards and doing it the way that he had done it. Like, like you were saying, it's like being a kid, you were catching these chubs again and you were doing all this stuff. And then you had worked your way up to this point to where, why do you want to go backwards? You've done that a million times before you're looking for the next challenge. And almost all fly anglers were like that. And then fly, fly fishing got to be more accessible to people to where they could just jump right in and they would jump right in on a fish like a bonefish. And then they would say, well, why would you ever want to spin fish for bonefish? Or I don't know. I think that's where a lot of that attitude came, 
comes from with some people and not everybody. And that and not every fly angler has this attitude, by the way. No, um, no, they don't. But that's but for sure. What I'm saying is that it used to be that the the path to fly fishing was starting with with worms and bobbers and working your way up. And then as it's become more accessible, as there's schools, as there's more guides, as there's more opportunity, you don't have you you could cut that entire learning process out of your fly fishing background, right? And you could yep. just jump right in and catch a tarpon as your first fish that you've ever caught in your life on a fly rod, right? Where a yep. Fitz Coker had to catch 5,000 of them on spin before he caught the one on fly because he's trying to figure it out. So now he's like, oh, this is the challenge. That's the one that got me the most excited out of the 5,000 I've caught before. This is the one that I got the most excited about. And this is the way I'm going to do it for the rest of my life cool yeah whatever it is i mean you know what yeah. that uh, that's that's fine and if you i don't know i this is a this is an attitude that really kind of bothers me too because um it's like if you don't want to do if bait is not your thing that's cool do your thing do whatever you do but why do yep. you have to criticize the other people and when you do it splits and on a much bigger level it splits anglers to, from conventional to fly, from bait to lure, from you see it happen all over the place, from saltwater to freshwater. And when you split anglers, when you have a conservation, uh, uh, something, something associated with conservation that is necessary right now, and you need all anglers to unite, it makes it much more difficult for everyone to come together when you're, when you're, infighting like I, I i call it infighting and i think it's ridiculous and silly that that a fly angler would not would would care one way or another what somebody else is doing or a bait fisherman wouldn't like a fly fisherman or a or a lure fisherman would get upset with with a with a live baiter like why like what do you care i mean i guess if they're killing yeah. fish or something like that but I don't know if you're having fun it all boils down to having fun to me if you're having fun yep. and that's what you like to do Go for it. And you know what? In some other situations, like what you're talking about, you're, you're doing something different to learn. You're not even necessarily having fun with it. Maybe it's not even fun. Maybe you were like, man, I'd really rather be fly fishing. I would, Larry Dahlberg can throw it into a teacup at 80 feet and I'd like to see him do that, but this is what he wants to do. And this is what we're going to do. And maybe I might learn something, right? Oh yeah. Oh, hundred percent. And, and yeah, and I've been out there with him where, Last year, my buddy Chris and I were with him and we were like, man, you know, uh, we would, we wanted to go fly fishing actually, because we had, you know, I mean, it, it's so amazing. So th this is what I think is really sad on the side of, of what, what we've been talking about is the things that I've gotten to see by not looking through a keyhole. Most people will not ever get to see like a prime example last year. Um, I don't, I think we, within those four or five days that we fished, we, I think we landed over 40 some muskies, um, just playing around with the bait deal. Wow. Um, in one particular day, uh, we found, and, and this was something that was very interesting too, is we had a shakeup or what I call a shakeup is where we had a big influx of water. And a lot of times what'll happen is these fish will start moving and, where I would, I was fishing them all week. They weren't in those spots. They moved to another place. And, 
and just by knowing this over years of 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 learning fish behavior and especially in this case musky that i was like all right they're not here um it's obvious because we're using these live baits and we're not moving them um or they're not eating it it's like let's go up about a half a mile or three quarters of a mile to a mile they should be there but last time we had a big high water event this is where they were hmm. um and sure enough we put in we put the baits in both boats at the time we were fishing two boats both boats the, the baits got in there they were both eaten within five seconds <laughs> so we're both we're drifting down larry's in my boat chris and josh are in the other boat and we both got muskies and and we're noticing um we just let them chew on them for a while because if you want to try to land them without a hook or whatnot you just kind of let them eat it and you got to let them take it down and then you can pull them up with the net and and it, they'll either spit it out finally regurgitate it or whatever and you're not hurting them right mm-hmm. it's i mean it's like they're the getting a free meal yeah. right they're getting a free meal out of the deal and you know you just pull it real hard and let them eat it so it's just kind of a it's actually a kind of a humane way for the muskies uh to fish for them not not too humane for the suckers mm-hmm. you know but uh <laughs> but the cool thing about it is is we went back into that same spot and every muskie i mean there must have been 20 fish in that spot we actually dropped a, a, uh, one of those fall fish in and we had four, I think, muskies eat it at the same time. Wow. And we were like, we were playing around and we were like, you know, a lot of times just by the way you watch how it goes, usually, and this is something else that learning from the sucker deal, this is another thing. He goes, you ever noticed when a muskie eats that he'll always eat going downstream? <laughs> I'm like, you know, I was like, you know, this happened 10 years ago. I'm like, no, I, I haven't noticed that. He goes, pay attention. So I started looking as we were getting eats on figure eights and whatnot. They would always make that eat using their current to their advantage to accelerate into the fly and going and eating it downstream because it enables them to one, not expend as much energy. And two, they're going to be able to accelerate a little bit more going downstream than they are going into the current. And it's little things like that, that, you know, looking outside the box or not looking into that keyhole that, and Larry shared with me and and I wouldn't have seen some of this stuff without, I may not have ever noticed that if he hadn't said something, but he wouldn't have noticed it if he hadn't tried all types of different things to Mm -hmm. be able to see how these fish feed and why they do it. But it all makes sense once you see how it works. Yeah. So we get into the spot and, you know, generally once a muskie eats and they're generally in the winter time. And, and I like guiding for them now because what happens is you get a, a big condensed population of fish in a smaller area, which makes it a whole lot easier, especially on a fly to target them when you know exactly where they're going to be and you have a higher volume of fish in a smaller area. Right. So, um, so you drop this bait down and generally when, when a muskie will eat a live bait, they're going to they're take it off somewhere away from their buddies and go eat it and digest it and and then they'll come back to wherever they're <laughs> they're laying and then they'll digest it and whatever but once they eat the bait they're going to take it off so they can have it it's kind of i'm sure you've seen birds do it mm-hmm. like uh yeah, dolls sure. or whatever yeah. grab a bait on the surface and they're swimming off they're running off with it and all the buddies are trying to mm-hmm. take it from it yeah absolutely same thing with muskies so a prime example of this is we dropped the bait down and it got eaten and we noticed that it it's not running off like it should. And we're like, something's going on. And, you know, 
Larry's caught thousands and thousands of muskies and on, on all types of tackle and he gets impatient, right? He's like, well, let's, let's just go ahead and pull it up. We don't know what it is. It's like, well, you know, I don't know, man, let's give it a little bit more time. It's like, all right, well, he gets now, let's just see what's going on. It's just acting weird. So he just, you can just run the boat over to where the, the fish are. We usually just leave them alone. So they don't know where we were there. So, but we decided to run the boat over to where they are and he's just reeling in without any pressure. And then we get over top of him. He just reels up real slow. And the next thing you know, we got like four muskies <laughs> and it looks like a, it looks like a Medusa. You got one here, one here, one here. And you got a, like a 15 inch bait. That's got a muskie attached to it on all sides. It's like that, that just lets you know, one, you know where they are. And the other thing about it too, is I've had my butt kicked so much by muskies over the years by doing it the harder way. Um, it's kind of nice to know that you, you, you still own them. You, you can catch them when you want to mm -hmm. just, you know, it's my, it's a mental thing for me when Larry comes down, it's like, all right, we're just going to go have fun. And it's just going to kind of one, it's going to allow me to understand their behavior more. And it, it also, even though you may have a day where the client's doing everything right and you're just not moving fish or whatever, but if you put a live bait down there and you catch them versus not catching them on conventional, that tells you something, right? It tells you you're not doing what they want you to do. Um, and you need to change what you're doing. And that for me, it's like you said, uh, uh, doing it on fly is the hardest way of doing it for sure. But it's taught me so much about what, what fish want and what they don't want and how they want it to do it and being able to, to view it from all aspects, just reconfirms what I do, what I do know and what I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, on the days that I don't do well, or the days that, that I am, that keeps me up at night that makes right. me want to say, all right, what do I need to do? What did I do wrong? What do I need to fix tomorrow? You know, and, and that's the stuff that keeps me going. You know, you know? what's interesting and, about that too, is like, you're, you're comparing bait to fly and bait to fly and all that stuff. But you can also see the other way, like in a community of, of guides that, you know, you got friends that are fly fishing, you got friends that are bait fishing, whatever. Some days the bait fishermen are not catching them. Tarpon right. specifically, and uh, and the fly guys are catching them. They smoke them, and yep. you're just like, I've seen what? that. Like how I had a live well full of mullet, and I caught zero, and this guy jumped sixteen on the ocean. Like what is going on? Well, maybe it's a worm hatch. Maybe it's something else that that you can't replicate with uh, with your bait. And, and so you see it both ways. And that's why I think yep. that it's ultra important to keep that, that open mind, uh, to the whole thing. But man, you got a, you got an awesome mindset for, for, it's no wonder whatsoever that you have been able to create the stuff that you have. I want to get back to the game changer. Cause I know we're running out of time here for a second, but one of the things that I've been the most impressed, and it's funny because earlier you said that you lose focus with things. Maybe you have ADD or whatever. When I look at the game changer, I'm like, well, first of all, I've never come up with a fly that is anywhere remotely as ha, has as much potential as what you have. Like the, the game changer is really cool. I have come up with some different flies and some of them have been kind of unique and stuff. But then I tie them for a couple of weeks and use them for a while. And then I just kind of drop it and move on. And 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 some of them, I, I, you know, I keep or I'll, I'll, I'll hand off to a professional tire and he'll tie me 10 dozen of them or whatever. but. Right. You have stayed with this platform, this game changer platform. And all you got to do is go look at your Instagram and you've done it with 
many different materials for many different sizes, for many different species, for many, many different, different things. You're using feathers, you're using synthetics, you're using everything that you can possibly imagine. You're taking other things that are interesting, like the mop tail for, for trout, like that's the mop flies, super, super, uh, um, effective, um, the Chinese dragon kind of thing. You've got all this stuff working into these patterns, into this platform. And, and it's becoming more and more refined over the years. You may not see it as much as as an outsider does, like me. I'm like, man, the first game changer I saw didn't look anything like this. Now this looks like a piece of art. Like what you're putting out now looks so good and so refined. And that's the only way it gets there. Like it's not a surprise that your that this all came from the gummy minnow that looked nothing like the game changer, right? And that there have been these horrible evolutions of this thing before it turns into this true work of art. Like what you have right now is it's unique. It's interesting, but it's also been refined and you continue to stay with it. Even though you say that you have trouble uh, with focus, like how, what do, what do you think the future of the game changer is? I mean, you, you're uh, another thing that I didn't mention is you're using it in nymphs. You're using it in, in all different kinds of things. You even said you had like a crab, idea so yep. like what is the future are, are you going to work on this pattern or this platform or are you going to continue to try to find the absolute perfect material for each species or what is it that you're that you're hoping for uh all of that um <laughs> so all of it uh i mean harry put me in that position uh i could tell you a funny story harry uh harrison steves a biologist he's brilliant um so, but he was also, when I met him, I was 16. So, um, so everybody that knows him, he, he's kind of known as a curmudgeon, but he's, he's very intelligent and funny. Um, and it was me and David, David was the only person I knew at my age, the guy I was telling you about that musky fished with me. Mm-hmm. Um, we both, Harry kind of took Harry and Steve Heiner both took us under their wing at an early age. And, uh, one particular day, of, uh, Steve Heiner had a guide trip. Um, and Harry tagged along and we met Harry down on the Smith river, which is a tailwater here in Virginia. And we walked down the railroad tracks to go fish these, these pools and we're all catching fish here and there. And, you know, Harry's on the other side of, of the river from David and I, and he starts catching one after the other. So after 20 minutes, David and I are 30 minutes, David and I walk across the river. David gets to Harry first, probably five, five minutes before me. And uh, he's opened up his box and he's handing David some uh, one of the flies that he's using. And I'm like, so what are you using? And uh, without a hesitation, it's perfect. Uh, I'm not going to say exactly what he said, but he goes, screw you. You're not old enough. <laughs> you know. And uh, so I'm like, all right. You know, at that point, you know, I was like, I'm going to come up with a fly one day that he's going to be dying to, to have. It just started. It hurt my feelings. One, it, it you know, and I didn't know Harry that well at the time, but it. it but it was, it was funny, but it pissed me off too. Right. <laughs> I was like, you know, I'm going to come, it, it just, it sparked something in me is like, you know what, but it, it was an eye opening thing is like, we all were doing decent and catching fish, but Harry figured out what was up and he was catching fish every cast, you know, <laughs> and, uh, it, and it, it just re instituted in my mind about how important the fly is. I mean, we spend so much money on gear and all that kind of stuff but it's the lure or the bait or the fly that's really the most important process 
of, of our whole sport. I mean, it's the most important part, you know, you have to deliver it to them. Right. But mm -hmm. what they see is directly impacting how you do on the water. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, that was my main goal at 16 years old until now I'm in my forties to, I, you know, that's what drives me every day when I'm on the water, I want to learn something new that I didn't know before that I can put towards a fly. And that's why there's so many different materials I use for the game changer platform um, because at certain sizes and in certain conditions, uh, these flies will do different, these materials will do different things in the water. Um, the, the clearer the water, the more time the fish has to look at the fly, the more realistic and more translucent the material needs to be. Um, and it needs to have that three-dimensional realistic swimming. Um, it's like we learned early on, profile, silhouette, and size are all super important. Movement gets the fish to your offering, but it's like a, a trout in a slow-moving pool versus a trout in a ripple. They have to make an instant decision to eat it or not the slower the pool they can come up on a dry mm -hmm. fly and look at it forever yep. and decide is that the right color mm -hmm. and they don't even see the color until they get right there right right and then they can say well that is a size 16 sulfur and it's got that orange hue that i've been eating i'm going to eat it with confidence so i know all that stuff by doing it and 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 streamer fishing or, or, or lure fishing it's all the same it's just a little, it's different. You know, you're, you're trying to trigger movement into it to get them there. And that's why I have it, uh, in the nymph versions. And, and, and I have these really cool shrimp patterns. And my problem is I don't live anywhere near permit, but I mean, my, my goal is, uh, is to figure out the permit fly. I mean, that, that is my next major goal. I just got to be able to put it in front of permit. I want to, I want to be on a bow. I don't have to be fishing, but I would just want to see how they interact with what you throw to them. I just don't have enough, uh, uh, well, I guess it, knowledge you know, or what I, the, the advice I'm going to give you for, if you're trying to create a permit fly is throw some crabs at them too, because dude, I mean, I don't know the way that they, the way I've been saying this for years is, you know, the, you, you can have a live well full of crabs and if they all die and you go out there and you throw them at the permit, they don't look at them anything better than they would a fly. They kind of eat them about like a fly. Sometimes they'll eat them. Sometimes they won't. You got to impart a little action to them and it's not scent. It's, I mean, you'll hear a lot of people, Oh, it smells like crab, put a little crab juice on it and you'll, it'll work. I don't think so. It looks like a dead crab. They don't like dead crabs and right. they don't want to eat them. You can sometimes catch them, but you throw a live crab out there that makes noise. It, I mean, you get the right crab that thing clicks and makes noise and it sounds, I mean, it has an audible sound and the legs are moving so fast and it, 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 it moves its legs back in one direction and almost looks like a fish swimming. They, they can swim so fast and it has kind of a, a, a pear shape kind of, uh, you know, like the fat head part of it going forward because all the legs are going backwards and it almost looks like a fish and certain crabs swim way faster than others. And man, when they see that, dude, it is, there's a puff of mud, uh, you know, four feet wide and they just ate the crap out of it. And there is no doubt. And I have never thrown a fly at a permit that reacts that way. 
And, and like, you know, when you throw like a, you, you're, you're, you're throwing size 16 sulfurs at, at trout and they eat and they eat and they eat and then they eat your fly and it's no different. And sometimes they even eat something else after your fly and it's no different. Their behavior is exactly the same. You know, okay, I got, I, I did that, right? You throw a, you throw a, uh, a, a jerk bait to a tarpon in in a situation to where they're they're exploding stuff on the surface and they explode on that jerk bait just exactly like they do everything else you got it that's that you're not going to do better than that but when when their behavior is like they go uh i don't know what that is okay i'll eat it and they eat it you're like okay we caught him but that's not it like you we have it for bonefish like you can throw something over for a bonefish and they get super excited about it and they eat it and their tail goes crazy and their dorsal fin flares up and they do all this cool stuff but i just we just i don't know i mean there's some permit flies out there and there's some guys that are doing it really really well right now and some secret flies and all kinds of stuff and people are catching more than they ever have but i still i just hadn't seen it personally maybe you can do it yeah well i'm not gonna say i can but i'm gonna try yeah it's like i said but I but, think it's uh, motion you know, though and sound. That's that's what yeah. I think. But I know well, a guy that knows a little bit about permit that has a boat that might might uh, put you on some fish. That'd be that'd be awesome. <laughs> you know, uh, a, a short story real quick is uh, exactly what you were talking about. Is you know I hate keep bringing Larry up, but I mean he's kind of my sounding board because he's done it all. Right. You know? um, so I've been trying to play with this idea, and I talked to him about permit, and he talks about going years ago, back in the, I guess, nineties, where he'd go somewhere secret spot where all these permit were. And he had just bushel of crabs, live ones. And he got up on this hard top T top and was pitching crabs to these permit and, and breaking legs off and doing all this kind of stuff and watching the reaction of the crab, uh, of the crab to the permit with, with less leg parts or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he was just saying there's a certain way that they swim and he, and he felt like it was a swimmerettes. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and he mm-hmm. said, as long as they had one swimmerette that was working, it would get eaten. Mm-hmm. But as soon as he would clip those off or whatever, it wouldn't eat any, they wouldn't eat it anymore. Mm. Um, it was, he, he said, it was just, uh, I believe it. Um, uh, I know a yeah, lot of guides, I know a lot of guides, some of the best permanent guides I know, um, when they have the opportunity to either have crabs with claws or without claws, they go with claws, right? Everybody wants them without claws because they don't, you don't like to get pinched when you go into the live well, but these guys were like, I mean, that's the first time I ever heard that. I was like, seriously? And yeah, that's natural. He has two claws. And when you take those off, it's not as natural. And they'll they'll still eat it plenty, plenty well. But I like right. the, this guy was like <laughs> Mark Croca. He was like, man, if a permit gets bit by a crab, then he just eats it even harder. And I was like, yeah, I like that. You know, you get, you imagine the, the claws biting the permit on the face as he's eating this crab. And then he's just like, Ugh. and then you get, the, you get the super bite. But anyway, that's awesome, man. Um, I'm, I'm afraid we're going to have to cut it close. Uh, but I want to do this again, man. I love, I love talking about all this stuff and I would love to get Larry Dahlberg on the podcast. Maybe you can help me with that. And yeah, I would yeah. also love to fish with you, man, up in, in Muskieville. I don't know what your schedule is like. I can only imagine that it's fully booked all the time, but if somebody wanted to fish with you, if somebody wanted to learn how to cut, tie a game changer, if somebody wants to uh, check out anything that you've done, where did they go? Uh, well, <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't have a website right now because uh, I always call it a shit show. I'm just uh, uh, 
I've been working on a website for a couple of years now and just don't ever have the time to put it together. But the best way to reach me is, uh, it's by email at bchocolate at comcast.net or Instagram or Facebook, uh, you know, private message me on that. Um, this year I am uh, booked for the musky season, but, um, you know, I've got a lot of things in my future. I'm really wanting to work on. Um, and I feel like you were saying about the musky, I, I, I'm really, really interested in a, a couple other fish species. So I'm going to hopefully in the near future, going to be able to spend more time doing that and, and design work with, some of the companies I'm working with, especially like Flyman Fishing Company, who's doing my flies now, and uh, they're doing such a good job. It's freeing me up to be able to go explore other other fish and species to try to kind of help. I mean, I'm not saying I'll be able to do it, but uh, I'm going to give it hell trying for yeah. sure. Um, I love it, man. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of failure. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, that's failure comes, you know, to get to the game changer. I would imagine there's been 10,000 failures, like the light bulb, oh, yeah. you know, like, oh. like that was what Edison said, right? Like he said, yep. it's just the first one that worked. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. He found 10,000 ways not yeah, to make it. Yeah, light. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome, man. It's, it's well, true. Um, I really appreciate you doing it. I, I really enjoyed uh, talking to you, getting to know you a little bit better. And let's get together and go fishing, man. Let's, 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 do, it. let's do it. I'd love it's it. It's been a pleasure, man. I appreciate it hey, very much. Thank you very much, Blaine. Blaine Chocolate. Thank you. Um, check him out. Definitely use his flies. Check him out. All right. See you. to go like just full-blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chase in the Sun, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. I'm Will Cooper, host of Hunt Stand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from Hunt Stand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device.